Hello and welcome to episode number six of Esoteric Artifacts. As always, I'm Sabash. This is my co-host, Glenn. Uh, today is going to be our last episode shooting in studio together, as Glenn is going to be moving here in a couple weeks uh, to his new home, and will be taking some time to set up his own studio there. Fortunately, uh, like I mentioned last episode, this is going to improve our setup a little bit because we're going to be able to display things in real time uh, on our screens for you. So we're going to be able to actually pull up articles and pull up data to reference what we're talking about and be a little bit more precise in the figures that we're discussing uh, rather than just having to run off memory or notes. Uh, so I think that'll be a little helpful. Uh, the other thing is um, I, that I wanted to touch on was uh, some of how the areas we've been vindicated in uh, based on what we were talking about in our last episodes in terms of prediction uh, as far as the recession goes. And I think that it has really come to light if you've been paying attention to the news over these last two weeks since we published our last episode. It is pretty much every analyst's opinion now that we are entering either a long-term bear market or a recessionary environment now. I mean, we've definitely been seeing that trend that we talked about on the last episode continue moving forward and get worse in many cases, particularly in terms of inflation, but also in the stock market with, you know, obviously the tech sector has been hit quite hard, especially recently here. And things are volatile right now, indicating at the very least uncertainty. And given all the trends that we've seen, all signs point to bear market or, in my opinion, recession, I think is more likely at this stage. But the only thing that's really up in the air is how long and how bad does it get before it actually starts to show some significant signs of change. Absolutely. And uh, it'll be years before we really see if our uh, assessment on the duration of recovery from this process is accurate. But you've been seeing a lot more people uh, a lot more respected mainstream opinions drop the term stagflation, which is uh, something that we discussed, I believe, two episodes ago, uh, which is uh, a very, uh, it, it's not the most likely scenario. It's a, it's more of a theoretical model. The precise conditions for stagflation uh, are rare in uh, actual economics and uh, something that we've, we, we did see in the, in the 70s. We don't know that those ex precise conditions will be met this time, but since you mentioned tech, there's been some major uh, changes, especially with tech. Tech has seen some of the most harsh corrections in the stock market. And some of the reason for that is tech is very speculative in value or has been treated as so by investors for a long time now. And there is also, they are also the most responsive in terms of uh, what actions they take and uh, the first thing that we've noticed is the hiring freezes at all the large cap firms. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to see because, you know, essentially since the dot-com bubble, tech stocks have really been growth stocks because they're the kinds of companies that are very easily scaled up to a wider variety of customers and also use cases. But the hiring freezes are in particularly that are happening now are happening in a lot of the fang companies, you know, Netflix, Apple, Google, fill in the blank, these big, big formerly Facebook, but now meta kind of ruined the uh, acronym there. But. Yeah. Well, you're going to lose some over the years, but it's really interesting to see, particularly as someone in the tech sector that, you know, I'm actually moving for a new job and like, there's a lot of change and there are a lot of tech companies that are still hiring but it's interesting to notice that it's the larger, more established tech companies like Google. Netflix has a variety of other problems that Google doesn't have right now. But Apple, you know, these are very highly valued, essentially blue chip companies, even though they're tech companies. And like those are the companies doing hiring freezes and essentially like, you know, trimming anywhere they can any extra expenses from the books where there's tons of startup companies right now that are essentially crawling over each other, trying to get quality talent. And like for my own interview experience, just, you know, basically January up until now, there was no shortage of people wanting to interview me. And like just off being a software engineer, they're extremely sought after right now. 
But at the same time, companies like Google are trying to cut the books and, you know, essentially freezing those opportunities, which I find very, very strange. Yeah. So that is interesting that you point that out because I have noticed a similar effect. I do know some people that have been laid off recently from tech firms, particularly in the area of e-commerce, just them scaling back their staffing and sort of contracting out labor that they previously kept in-house. So you see that in these larger firms and you also see, uh, like, like you mentioned, Glenn, these smaller firms uh, that did plan accordingly and took advantage of these sky high valuations that we've seen over the last two years and took advantage of those that this time period to, uh, you know, shore up their financing and or go public and, uh, you know, through whatever means they took, they did, took the right actions in, in that scenario and they have a large pool of capital to go into hiring, you know, the most qualified candidates that they can get. And it does seem like those firms are really like chomping at the bit to get the best people they can in the door right now. Yeah, it really seems to me like COVID in many respects has helped a lot of companies. Obviously, it's terrible virus and tons of people have, you know, had to go through that. But the actual companies that took that uncertain, risky period and took the time to shore everything up and prepare, they're in the perfect position now to take advantage of what's available to them. You know, like this great resignation that we've been hearing about for practically a year now. Like there are tons of people who would like to switch their job for whatever reason. Maybe that's switching fields, maybe that's switching industries, but quality work is a person who wants to work there. And so if you can get someone who's passionate or even the least bit interested in a position is going to be infinitely more valuable to a company than someone who's just walking into work, doing the same thing they hate every day and getting, you know, sicker and sicker of it as time goes on. Absolutely. And as a broader point to what you're saying, that, that really is uh, emblematic of the broader issue in labor markets in general in our economy is that there is a lot of job industries, I should say, that are suffering because they cannot find people that want to work. And, you know, I'm not one of those people that's just like, oh, well, nobody, nobody wants to work these days. It is definitely true that the quality of, of labor pool has uh, declined in the United States over time in certain sectors of the economy. And a lot of that's valid. A lot of that is people feeling disenfranchised with the treatment they've received in these industries or the uh, fact that their pay has not scaled with their company's productivity and their company's product profit margins. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of valid criticisms of the fact that these profits have funneled their way largely to the top, to the investor class, and not so much to uh, labor. However, this is something that's kind of important that I'd like to discuss right now. For the last year and a half, as the economy has steadily reopened, labor has had significant negotiating power and has had uh, significant power in general. You've seen a lot of major unionization efforts underway with Amazon, with Starbucks, uh, just unheard of uh, you know, levels of unionization that Amazon's been around for a long time. It's been discussed potentially unionizing for a long time as well. And that has never really uh, come to the table in any meaningful way. And now it's been achieved in New York and I believe in a few other locations. And uh, similarly with Starbucks, there's uh, quite a few of their locations that have unionized now. And uh, uh, Elon Musk actually opened up the conversation uh, a few weeks ago and said that he was open to, uh, this is extremely rare for a CEO and founder of a company to outright make a public statement on saying, I'm okay with a unionization meeting occurring within my company. If people would like, if my employees would like to discuss that, they're free to, because Generally, you know, CEOs are on standing starkly on the opposite side of that. And even if they won't make direct comment, they will not make active comment in support of the idea. And this is something that Tesla has been criticized for for many years now. Yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> particularly in, you know, just the technology field in general, it's really weird <laughs> time period that we're in now where, like you're saying, like the employee has so much more sway in the conversation and the negotiations than really ever before in many respects. And I think that's also partially why we're seeing hiring freezes 
and specifically I'm referring to Apple and Google in this case, in that if you're already established with, you know, quality engineers who you presume are at least somewhat loyal to the company, then it's not to your benefit to be trying to seek out the best of the best right now, because you're also going to have to pay a lot since other companies are interested as well. And your product is already built out while you may be looking to add new features. You're not building something from scratch anymore. Exactly. And in tech, like maintaining something is dramatically less staff than developing something new. Like once it's up and running, you need for some of the most complex ones, maybe 50% of the staffing, but it's much more like a quarter of the people that you actually needed to develop and test it. Mm hmm in order to maintain it. And engineers are very accustomed to this model. Most of them typically don't like to stay in one place for longer than a year or two years. You'll see a handful of people stick around for five to 10 years. Those are people that are climbing the ranks in management typically as well. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> that's spot on. And like one of the things that I've kind of figured out on my own to characterize the tech field, especially is there's essentially three different avenues that you go into in tech. And that is management, i.e. team leader, project manager. Eventually you'll move up to, you know, some form of VP executive office. Right. And then you have the specialists, which is the class that I fall into a bit more in that I'm, uh, you know, steeped in the technical components and the depth of the field, but so much to the degree that in order for me to teach someone else what I do takes years. Right. So like the breadth, the depth of my knowledge is really what the companies are after. And so like I'm highly paid, I think, because I'm so specialized and there's not many people that can do that. But at the same time, I'm never going to move into management in that respect. Right. And then the third one is the people who got into whatever company or project because they love the project or they love working on it. And the most common place you see this is in game development, where designers and programmers will follow the IP of the game instead of staying with the same company for long periods of time. And so that's why we get like um, Call of Duty teams working on other video games, you know, the next year, maybe a couple years down the road. But it's much more common in video games, especially, but in many other areas of technology where you work on a contract basis and that contract is tied to whatever it is that you do for that project. Yeah. And video games, uh, industry is a massive, massive growth sector. It's really not stopped for the last couple of decades and it's exceeded every speculation in terms of what, what the total market value of the industry was expected to be at. Absolutely. And it is, it, I, I can understand why a lot of engineers would be drawn to that because it is the intersection of art and design at, with the technical side of things as well. And yeah, like you say, it's just like, it's the same scenario as uh, like working on film, right? A lot of people want to direct, write film, write scripts, write, you know, screenwriting. Uh, there's not a lot of jobs in those areas. It's extremely saturated. Uh, I wonder if we will start to see the same level of nepotism uh, begin to play out in the video games industry that we see in uh, in film. So I, th I think you're spot on with that. And I think we will to some degree. I think one of the saving graces and kind of like, you know, get out of jail free card for the video game industry is it's not hard to make an indie game. It is very hard to make an indie game good. Mm -hmm. But like, it, you know, a team of one to five developers can easily make a game and publish it, you know, out for potentially billions of people with the internet. So it's not as restrictive in like movies are such epic productions, right? It costs yeah. millions and millions of dollars to make a movie and it can cost millions of dollars to make a game, but it's far more common that it takes time. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're going to see a shift where more college kids and high school age kids will be taking over the indie scene. And then anyone who continues that after the fact will be 
you know, a group of like-minded friends working on a project together or AAA game studios building out these epic IPs that we've, you know, Call of Duty, Halo, these IPs have been around for decades now and are massive. That's kind of what we've seen, but it's funny that we're going in this direction because I just read yesterday that Activision Blizzard was hit hard by, they've lost 60 million players in their player base. Yeah. And obviously their player base grew much larger once Blizzard merged with Activision because Call of Duty is a massive, absolutely massive intellectual property. But what we've, it's like you say, we've been seeing the same trends within the video game industry that we see in Hollywood and un, from the large studios, I should say, an unwillingness to innovate, a desire to stick to the established and, uh, you know, IPs that they know are going to be profitable, that they don't need to put a ton of effort into, you know, how many, how many changes have actually occurred between the FIFA games or Madden games over the last decade, you know, sure. Graphics updates, but besides that, does anything really change? I don't think a whole lot does Well, I play those games, but I, I think it's funny you bring up the sports games because I'm actually a big Madden and NBA 2k fan. And I should clarify that I'm an NBA and an NFL fan, 2k and Madden. Like I've played so many of those games, you know, throughout my entire life. And it literally gets to the point where from one game to the next, the only difference is the roster, which is like, you know, the names of the players. Yeah, of course. And like you want the up-to-date roster with the players that you're seeing on TV. Exactly. Right? So you're essentially buying this $60 game for a roster update every week as trades happen and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the core game itself isn't any different than it ever was. But then you also get knockoff games. And like, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's there's a football game. I think it's called like Monster Brawl or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's literally a bunch of monsters in like kind of football gear playing a like completely arcade and over the top version of football. But like that game is so much more fun than Madden because it's the same game I've played for so long. And we're seeing that even the sports are, I would say the worst ones when it yeah. comes to this, but like call of duty and battlefield yep, and even halo, like how much has it changed? Halo's had some back and forth, like pendulum swinging. Hey man, they added a grappling hook. Okay. <laughs> they added something that all other games have had for yeah. like four years now. But, and I do like the new Halo game, Halo Infinite. I think it's a good, you know, homage to the original. Yeah. And sure, it's got its issues, but like Halo 1 came out in the early 2000s. <laughs> like that game is old now. Still stands up to the test of time though. I mean, it does. It was a great game. Yeah. But I think we're going to slowly move into this era where good IPs are drawn out and every single penny is pinched out of them. But I think we're going to see a lot more indie games trying to do new things. So we're going to get a lot of bad games, but we're going to get a couple absolute diamond in the rough gems that are going to blow up into new IPs. Oh, that's been my personal preference for years. There's a handful of AAA games that I will play, but for the most part, I've been loving what I see out of the indie space. And like you say, most of the time, it is literally a team of one to 10 developers tops. Like, I mean, a 10 person team, really, like that's including art and music and everything. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, what was it just uh, last year when Valheim came out? I think it was last year. Might have been. Yeah. Let's not talk about Valheim, though. That was a disappointment in terms of the development speed. Well, (laughs) I mean, everything's got its issues, right? It was a a great initial release, but it was uh, it was a great initial release and had way more than anyone expected right away. And I think that's what really blew people out of the water, because I think it was a team of like three or four guys made that game. That's that is pretty impressive. And like, you know, so it's definitely achievable. And at this point. Um, they have enough money from Valheim that if they wanted to, they could set up their own development studio and whatnot. And then it becomes, you know, a personal question of whether they want to continue working on it. You know, if I got paid a ton of money, millions of dollars for a single game, probably wouldn't work on games for a little while, if I'm being honest. Yeah, that's, we can kind of see studios having gone in two different directions. And this really does tie into the um, sort of hiring slowdowns that we were just discussing as well. 
because you have uh, studios that have a hard time scaling or really have just decided not to scale because they didn't need to because they put out an initial... The, the model has been for some time to re release a game and start selling it while it is still in alpha stage or you know in, in beta stage. Early release, the game is unfinished and the hope is that so what has been produced is polished enough that it gets people interested and enough people buy it that it allows further financing and development of the game. And you saw this with uh, Genshin Impact released in 2020. It's uh, made by a Chinese studio. And this game generated extremely outsized revenue compared to the cost to develop it. It has brought in hundreds of millions of dollars already. And the team decided to not scale even in spite of the fact that it had already paid for its full development cost 10 times over, you know, within three months of its release, the pandemic really contributed to that was because a lot of people were at home and 2020 was a, a year that games that had managed to release by that point thrived greatly. Games that were in development in the later stages got delayed because of obviously, you know, most of these studios were working in person in office. Uh, they took a little bit of time to transition out of that model, but like I was saying, you have these companies that decided not to scale and are still trudging along with a slow development pace because they didn't want to scale. And despite having the money to do so, you also have games like No Man's Sky, which was a kickstarted originally, mm -hmm. I believe, right? And was an extreme disappointment to most of its fans when it was released. But then that team actually took the effort to, over the course of several years, fully flesh out and actually build out the game, even though they didn't really need to. They could have just ran with the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's just that... I don't really want to call it volatility, but the flexibility that people are approaching new games with, I think is really good for the industry overall. Because it's been quite a long time where there's been basically one RTS game or one shooter that is like the shooter, right? Mm -hmm. And so now we're actually getting to the point where there is more variety and gaming is, you know, basically has been mainstream for, you know, almost a decade now. And so I think we're really getting to that point where like the medium itself is going to start maturing and like that variety in genre and the new ideas, I think is going to come soon, but I don't think that's really going to have an economic impact as far as stock pricing or this current bear market. Definitely not in the near term. Yeah, I do think that's interesting you point that out about, uh, because even the preference for genre has shifted quite a lot over the years. You know, when we were growing up, RTS and MMORPGs were huge. Mm -hmm. um, those were the genres. Now you have um, uh, MOBAs, which is, what is that? Massive Online Battle Arena. Yep. Yeah, MOBAs are, are big. Uh, battle Royales like Fortnite uh, have obviously crushed it in uh, financially. And then you have uh, kind of more sandbox games uh, do really well, especially with kids and adults, really. But Minecraft and Roblox remain titans in the industry. And, you know, Roblox was acquired by Meta last year. And they really very obviously want to integrate this with Oculus and with this entire concept of the metaverse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, along with this, like, so we've seen so many video game studios and publishers get bought out over these past couple of years. And like, I actually just confirmed for myself a couple of days ago, I'd heard about it a couple of weeks back, but that Warren Buffett invested tons of money in video game companies. Really? Yeah, I, I forget how many Berkshire million Hathaway had any video game. Players. No, it, so it's it's him personally, oh, not him Berkshire personally. Huh. Hathaway. I forget how many millions of dollars he invested, but it, I think it was in Activision Blizzard. Interesting. But um, that I mean, I'm not calling that out. Warren Buffett's obviously a very successful investor, but what I'm getting at here is the confidence in the industry and in the value of that industry is really turning video games into much more of a stable entity than it's really ever been considered before. Yeah. For those who are not familiar, Warren Buffett, despite his success, is widely known as one of the most conservative investors and having the most conservative investment philosophy of pretty much anybody that's big out there. So the fact that he's invested now into video game companies personally, that's pretty significant, I would say. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, from someone who's been around video games, like, I kind of always knew that, but it's always been a weird point for me of, like, how do you explain how good a game is or how much enjoyment you got from a video game to someone who doesn't play games? Like, it's, you know, that kind of a weird conversation that, like, you can't really evaluate it until you play it and understand it, you know, at least to some degree. Yeah, it, that is interesting. The casual space for games has grown quite a lot as well. I think a ton of people that would tell you they've never played a video game before have played, you know, Jackbox or Among Us or, you know, games like that, uh, th- that even aside from all the mobile games that are out there these days that people just play to kill time when they're in a waiting room or something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like when we when we were growing up, like video games were still new mm-hmm. and like you played board games when you met up with each other in person, you know, your systems were back at your houses or, you know, brought them over for land parties and stuff like that. Like it's not, it's way more free flowing now. Yeah. And I also particularly like, this hasn't been happening enough in my opinion, but I particularly like that the pricing of games is becoming more varied as well. So like you used to be like $50 for a new game all the time. And now they're up to like $60 is the usual price. But then I you have, we're, we're going to see that $70 standard be set pretty soon here. Well, now we're, yeah. g- I, I think you're right about that. The, the average is going to go up a little bit, but at the same time, we're seeing all of these different packages for, you know, deluxe DLC mm-hmm. or, you know, like we were talking about the early access, the alpha versions or the beta versions. And sometimes those are just, buy the game at half cost before we finish it and help us get to our goals kind of thing. And I've bought a lot of games that way. And some of them worked out great. Some of them haven't, but the whole monetizing video games via in-game currencies and microtransactions hasn't been great, but not having the one path to pay for it, I think is a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody who plays games enjoys, like, especially in the mobile space, you see this a lot, uh, advertisements constantly being thrown at you, unskippable, like 30 second advertisements. It's truly awful. The freemium model is, uh, I I find it horrendous, but I mean, it is probably most effective on children who don't have credit card info on their devices and are like, yeah, I guess like they have a lot more time available than uh, the rest of us. So they're like happy to watch a 30 second ad if it gives them some in-game currency or it lets them keep playing. Right. Well, and that's also another interesting point is because so many of these tech companies are built on, you know, clicks or views per page. And so like, it doesn't matter. Like even if anyone is there actually watching the ad, the advertisers are paying for the space anyway. Right. So what I'm yeah. getting at here is you could essentially write a web crawler that just goes from web page to web page across the internet, purely in software, and plays these ads. And these advertiser companies are going to think that they're getting their money's worth. And so I think it's really interesting that you point out that, you know, it's really frustrating and, you know, people like me and you really hate it. But most of the people watching it are kids who, you know, they're going to go complain to their parents and maybe they'll get some transactions done that way. But those aren't the people with the capability to buy it. Now, obviously, they're chasing after the whales, as we've heard them called. Absolutely. But it's interesting how that's actually playing out in the world. Well, because for those of us who are adults and have jobs and have very little free time, I, I enjoy gaming a lot, but I don't have a lot of time to indulge in it because I'm very busy with, you know, work and social events and, you know, a number of other commitments. So if I can spend $5 or $10 to, uh, skip all the ads and to do that, I, but, and I'm enjoying a game, I will gladly do that. It's my time is worth way more to me than that $10 is. Yeah. But I mean, you would, you would try the game first though. Okay. So like, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's more what it's, that's what we're getting with like the early access and the demo Mm -hmm. type, uh, setup or uh, I should say payment model, but like with the mobile games, especially like they're just putting out like a couple dollar games. Like it's, you know, it doesn't cost much to buy the game and then play it. 
it's all about the in-game transactions is where they're making all the money. Mm -hmm. But I feel like maybe this is just me and, you know, I'm too old to understand the youngest generation. I don't know. But like, how many hours do you really spend playing a mobile game? And, you know, we're already pressed for time as working adults with other commitments. Like it's mostly children, right? Who are playing I, I, these mobile games? I think games. so. I would assume so. And so, like at that point, like is advertising via a mobile game actually effective? Because I wouldn't, perhaps. I wouldn't think so. And here, well, here's why I think it is because most of the advertising that's going on within these mobile games is actually for other mobile games. It's that's it, true. It's, it's a really bizarre model when you consider marketing as a whole because imagine a scenario where like you have cable through AT&T and they exclusively advertise Verizon and T-Mobile like they're uh, I'm talking obviously Verizon right. and T-Mobile I'm pretty sure are not in the cable space while AT&T is but the example I'm trying to make is imagine exclusively advertising for your competitors on your platform and not being affected by it significantly right. because it's just kind of a revolving door of like the people that play these types a, a certain genre of game will try out all of the other uh, variants within that genre pretty much yeah that's a good point i mean it is true that like generally speaking you don't get just like random ads in mobile games or even browser games for that matter. It's generally speaking somewhat related as in, you know, another game or, you know, these days some social media website that's set up for, you know, gamers or guilds. I'm sure TikTok does advertising within these games. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or well, at least did. Uh, now they're massive. So, well, it's actually funny that you mentioned that because this is the first game I noticed ads in like a full on PC game was Black Desert Online. Mm. which was i believe made by a chinese developer as well that's an mmorpg right? yes it is yeah i might be a korean developer now that i think about it i'm not sure mm -hmm. but when you're walking through the cities it's very much like a it's not doing it justice but it's a wow style mmo so you're you know seated behind your character third person and i noticed just walking through one of the cities in that game that the banners for the city have logos of different companies on there and Snapchat and TikTok are both in there. Wow. And there were a couple other that I recognized as well at the time. I can't remember which ones now, but I, that just kind of floored me when I first noticed that. Well, we've seen that in like Marvel films and stuff, right? Like oh, product absolutely. placement, car, car companies are always looking for agreements with these films to be like, hey, exclusively showcase our cars. I wouldn't have known about the Hyundai Genesis if it wasn't for, I can't remember what, uh, you know, actually, it was uh, the TV show was White Collar. Oh, I yeah. You, I don't know if you ever saw that. Yeah, yeah I, I liked White Collar. Yeah, it was a good show. Actually. But uh, actually, it's hilarious that you mentioned the comparison earlier. You mentioned the comparison from Hollywood to the gaming industry. And we're definitely seeing those aspects come over a lot more like product placement in particular, like the Transformers movies. The Camaro was one of the worst selling coupes. For like four or five years. At least the new ones, yeah. Absolutely. And then they came out with the uh, Transformers 1 mm -hmm. and immediately turned that around because they like redesigned the whole body of the car and it was amazing. But <laughs> it like totally turned around their business, that product placement. Yeah. I mean, they did make a quality car. But sure. I mean, I, I disagree. I know you're biased because you. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I owned a Camaro yeah. and I really I, liked it and I, I yeah. don't own it anymore. I got yeah. rid of it, but. Yeah, I sold yeah. it for financial reasons. I yeah. <laughs> now I, I I know a lot of people from up in Michigan that are huge fans of Camaro, but marketing is incredibly powerful in that way. And another uh industry that I see advertising in areas where you wouldn't expect them to in places like in a mobile game, for example, is uh companies that are not looking to make immediate conversions. And that is insurance, for example. Insurance and like the big big telecom firms. They are really just trying to get name recognition out there. So like Spectrum or Allstate or all these companies, they really just want you to know and remember their name so that when eventually you do come to the point where you need insurance, they're the first company that you think of. Well, yeah, it's the like name recognition, but also like the word association, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, insurance, Progressive, Geico, Allstate, you know, down the list, yeah. right? Of all the ones you see the most often. Mm -hmm. And so... It's really interesting because at the same time, there's no 
new insurance companies. I mean, I'm sure there are a couple and I yeah, just but, haven't but heard of them. It's definitely like the larger. Right. Companies. It's just the big ones that you Absolutely. hear. It's see. very, very difficult these days to set up a full, you know, an underwriting department that can underwrite well enough for you to compete against these large firms. Right. Well, and I think that's, you know, kind of harkening back to where we started this at with the, you know, tech valuations and the current market conditions in that, like, you know, Apple and Google basically have been, you know, overvalued and championed for years because they're massive tech companies that essentially at this point, most of their tech has already been developed. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, update the Google Pixel and the web browser, maintain it, you know, that kind of stuff. And Netflix put up new shows, whatever. And so now it's like they're trying to switch to a not tech model. And I don't know where they would go with that. But it does seem like there's that there's some ceiling at which a tech company's growth is plateauing. And Netflix is a perfect example of this with you know, essentially they're subscri- they stopped gaining new subscribers. Yeah. And then, you know, show issues, whatever controversies that people may or may not care about going on. And all of a sudden you're losing subscribers quite quickly. Well, they cast a really wide net in terms of the content that they wanted to back and produce, right? That, I mean, to their credit, I, I, will, I will say I respect that endeavor because we probably got more variety out of Hollywood through Netflix backed productions than we had seen in a long time because all of these established studios, you know, us in film, at least they wanted to stick to a very narrow area. Like we were talking about with these established IPs, they know Marvel movies, DC movies, always going to make money. And I'm not really big on superhero movies myself. I will watch a a lot of them, but, uh, and that's why we've seen, you know, even, uh, we were talking about this a few weeks ago off camera, like the uh, J.K. Rowling's universe, you know, the Harry Potter world and that that IP, despite the fact that I, I did she write Fantastic Beasts, uh, the stories yeah. behind those. OK, but so at this point, yeah. And then you see, but they're just trying to adapt every piece of content that they can get out of it. And you also see this with Amazon's new uh, Lord of the Rings show mm-hmm. as well. That's going to be coming out soon. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's interesting that they're not, they're more interested in investing lots of money into an established IP than spending a little bit of money to try a new IP. I mean, they definitely still are to some degree, but it definitely seems like there's more, once an IP is successful, there's it's way easier to get more material out of that. Well, the risks just didn't pay out in a lot of cases. You look at Netflix. uh, I don't know if you ever saw it. Do you ever watch Marco Polo? Mm -hmm. They put a ton of money into that show. They were trying to compete with Game of Thrones with that because they were like, well, let's take advantage of this new environment without as many content restrictions as you would have had if you were airing on television uh, since, you know, this is uh, streaming. So they, you know, really amped up the you know violence the sex all of that kind of stuff in uh, after game of thrones became popular uh for in part because of some of those things and they it was a complete flop you know they ran it for two seasons i i actually enjoyed the show uh, i you know i don't think it was worthwhile for them to produce it at the cost they were producing it at yeah but, so those a lot of those risks just didn't pan out and they yeah, inv- investors are going to look at them and, you know, imagine the conversation where you have to go in and say, yeah, we spent a couple hundred million of your money and uh, <laughs> didn't see return on investment. Like that's uh, that's not a conversation that any executive wants to be having with their, their you know, their financial yeah. backers. Well, that also brings up an interesting point, too, in that it's really hard to get investors to invest in something that you can't show them anything of beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so I, that definitely makes movies and just media in general quite tricky from an investing standpoint. Yeah, the cost of of attaining you know high quality artistry is immense. It's not like it has been for hundreds of years in human civilization, where it was largely a a, a lone artist through a extreme labor of love 
you know, Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel, you know, you're talking, you talk about like Van Gogh's work and uh, all of this stuff where one person just so dedicates their life's effort to their pursuit of their endeavor that they achieve greatness. And it's, it, it hasn't been that way for quite some time. I mean, it, it definitely is still, I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but broadly speaking, that's not the bulk of music, of film, of video games, of all these different mediums of art. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's definitely, well, I think, I think that brings up a good point just kind of overall is that like, the idea of, you know, someone dedicating themselves that much to something, you know, in order to be that practiced and that good to achieve that level of greatness. Like we don't really see that in society overall these days. You get it every once in a while. Like uh, when LeBron James entered the NBA, his first couple seasons, it just completely blew everyone away. Uh, Zion Williamson was one of the newer mm-hmm. ones that I've just like completely floored me watching him play basketball. Yeah. And like, whenever you see that, it doesn't matter whether it's in sports or, you know, management and you know, where it is in life, whenever somebody's on the cusp of being that good at something, it just like naturally draws you in and you become engaged and sit on the edge of your seat. And like, you know, for me, when I go to a tech convention, and like I'm listening to a good lecture talk about an interesting project, like I'm just like I am at a football stadium, sitting on the edge of my seat, ready to stand up and cheer and, you know, go crazy, basically. But it's just because that's how dedicated and passionate I am about that. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people miss or don't necessarily focus on just because there's so many other things going on. And life gets tricky as you get older. There's a lot more things going on. I think in a lot of cases, it's just that they don't find what it is for them. They are, that I think there's a lot them to, to that, that degree of passion. And, you know, cer- like you say, circumstances don't necessarily allow everyone to pursue their passions. And that's, you know, kind of unfortunate that that's the nature of the world we live in and probably always will be, you know, in, in a way. A lot of those people, artists in the past were only able to do what they did because the nobility financed their lifestyles, essentially, right? In large part. And I would say that's like in large part true today. It it kind of is, right? Right. You you look at artists, who are they selling like in a visual medium? Who are they selling their art to? Selling it to extremely wealthy people still. NFTs even. Like Mm -hmm. we we can even go there. It's, It's who's buying NFTs. Like for the most part, extremely rich people to show off to their other friends that they own this NFT. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely always the way it has been. And, um, if you, we've, we've talked about this before too, we talked about this with Will actually was if you ask most people, you know, in your ideal world, if, uh, what would you, what would you want to be doing? Most of them would say, I would want to be an artist. I would want to, I would want to just be a gardener or something. Like I, I would want to just create beauty in, in, in that respect. I think we are all, almost all of us are kind of drawn to that and it doesn't really make for a very functional society, obviously, if everyone is just doing that. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that causes a lot of problems in any system in particularly society and the way it currently exists is basically built on productive work which is quite a rigid metric to, you know, argue value, I would say. Yeah. And I, I really, this is like one of the greatest mysteries to me is what direction we'll really end up going in, in terms of people's discontent and disenfranchisement with the way things currently are. Um, because while it is true that, you know, people have always suffered and struggled in order to survive and still do today in many parts of the world, uh, never before in any point in history has it been more visible to the masses how the how those who are truly wealthy and comfortable live, essentially. Social media has kind of amplified this and it's it's made a lot of ordinary people who may work a job in retail or may work, you know, administrative, like a low-level administrative role, just have a great deal more envy for the lives of the super wealthy because they can actually see them. You know, they are engaging in the same spaces as these people because they're seeing what these people are posting online. Whereas a hundred years ago, you know, you would rarely cross paths with those people that were, 
you know, that disparate from where your societal station was. Yeah. And I've actually, that has made me think of a couple of research surveys and various case studies that I've seen before. And I'll need to look them up and check them again. But if I remember correctly, there are multiple psychological experiments where if a lower income and higher income person live right next to each other, the perceived inequality is far greater than if they lived across the street from each other. Interesting. And like the main, the main idea behind that is if you live in an area where, you know, relatively similar income is what surrounds you, that's what you think normal is to a large degree. Like it's not as obvious, which I think is something that just kind of happened historically in the U S in like the nature and what we, which we built our cities and like suburbs out. And like that has gone away almost entirely with the internet and the social media that we have today. Cause like you're saying it's front and center, what all of the Kardashians are doing, whether you care or not, yeah. there's a news outlet, you know, putting that information out there. Oh, I mean, I don't consume any kind of like tabloid media or anything like that, but even I can't hide from it because there's still, I use Twitter and there's still that Twitter trending tab and I, I'm still seeing those headlines. It's extremely profitable and yeah. it's just going to stay there. It's mm-hmm. not going anywhere. Well, and you look at with online, uh, this is something you were, we were talking about earlier with cost with impressions uh, being like such a major marketing metric now, news online news sites, uh, you know, have largely become clickbait. Everybody knows that, you know, the flashier headlines, more, you know, dramatization of events than is, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the most honest uh, reporting. It's just the most, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's reporters that are definitely told by their editors, Hey, make as many people mad with this headline as you can. Well, and I mean, yeah, quite literally. Yeah. But it's interesting to know that like that's what they sell. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're not out there to tell you what you think the news is. Yeah. They're out there to have your attention. And Absolutely. that means they're judged on clicks and time you spent on the website. So like that's all they're interested in, particularly with like the online articles. Well, and if you look at like sites like Daily Mail is one of the worst offenders. And you can't even really block these ads because they're built into the web pages at this point. So right. ad blockers don't block these these uh, uh, these ads, but they're serving you like all tabloid content. That's that's the only things I ever see like clickbait tabloid content on what is already a relatively clickbait article about a real subject. But yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's really, especially over you know this uh, pandemic period we've really seen this kind of like grasp for attention and like, it's really, that's what's being monetized right now is your attention. You know, what shows or movies do you watch? What video games do you play? That's the information that all these companies are interested in now. We've also lost a lot of society, societal virtue to a degree. You know, there was like, Envy is typically not viewed as something that's good, right? It is both on, on from a Judeo-Christian foundation and from like these. It is, it is one of the seven deadly sins as well. It's from most every societal worldview in the past. It was viewed as not a good thing to feel envious, and that was for your own benefit. You know, that was not to say like, hey, don't don't try to seek a better situation for yourself. It's just saying more so you're not going to gain anything productive just from feeling envy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, it's weird historically because there's so many overlapping things going on. So, you know, when you have the rising and falling of different nations and like the Roman empire and all that, which, you know, dramatically changes cultures over time, but also over regions as borders change and wars happen. But, you know, even now we're still, we're still not aware of what culture blending is occurring. So like historically speaking, people had to actually physically travel places Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, sample or be immersed in another culture. 
but with the internet you know we can hop online and talk to somebody in france google maps you can drop a person on the street and walk around paris you know and that's not something that's ever been available to people and at the same time i mean this has been happening slowly over you know, almost two centuries at this point but like move to more secular religious beliefs i'll say as well as you know obviously all of the previous religions are still standing to some degree but like that interesting culture blending and philosophical changing changes all happening at the same time and it's essentially due to technology and our ability to go find and talk about whatever it is we're interested in with other people i would agree with you in part that technology is a major contributor to that but I also think that a lot of other factors played into it, the Cold War being a significant one of them. The Cold War's entire ideology was two uh, you know, factions, uh, two different economic models at odds with each other, saying our way of life is better and leads to more prosperity than the other. Well, that was the argument, but that's what I mean by all of these different systems overlapping, because it was an ideological battle specifically in the cold war but and i mean world war ii a broader more broadly speaking but it's more a matter of the aspects that you can control so like in the cold war the economies were really the def, you know defining differentiator between the ussr and the united states or more broadly the west but you can't really separate the economy of the ideology without also attributing the political side of the ideology. And what I'm explicitly getting at here is the USSR now Russia's basically entire history being, you know, forceful oppression of people to some degree. And at the same time, essentially slaughtering and imprisoning an incredible number of their own people is what essentially led to the collapse of the USSR anyway. But it's not easy to differentiate those things. And culture in particular doesn't abide by, you know, patriotism or nationalism. Like, culture just happens by people being close together. And so, like, you know, as more people move into the United States, and as more people from the United States move out you know, to Europe or to Asia or wherever, like that culture blending is still happening much in the same way that it used has happened historically. But at the same time, we can do that without physically going there now. And so I think that's the more dramatic impact that we're seeing because the United States and, you know, variety of cities in the United States have had particular issues with blending cultures. Sometimes that's been riots most of the time, it's been setting up little communities for that culture wherever they are. You know, like half, if not all of the major cities in the U.S. have some version of a Chinatown. And that's where you go to get, you know, authentic Chinese food or as close as you can get in the States. And, you know, those kinds of communities in some ways are like a pillar of that culture. Because some things are shared but in going there. And they're also sharing some of the surrounding culture by being there. But I think that's that whole transition is happening much, much more differently than it has previously. Hmm. You said a lot of things there that I'd like to address, but um, I, I'm only going to be able to go in one of these directions. And I'm going to pick the namely uh, the cultural exports like you're talking about. Like you say, yes, the United States has kind of always been a little bit unique in that we've taken a lot more immigrants than virtually every any country. Actually, we still do today. We take more immigrants than any country on the planet, and that has had dramatic impact on our culture. But from this country's foundation, the fact that it is a republic comprised of 50 states, it makes for opportunity, and it is in fact preferred that different locales have different cultures and they do and that's one of the awesome things about this country is that if you grow up in a place that is maybe you grow up in the northeast and 
you are a very laid back person and you don't like how fast everyone walks in, in Manhattan, but you grew up there. You can move to California. You can move to Florida. You can move to places where people move on a different time and, you know, just have, have, have a complete fundamentally different culture from, despite the fact that you speak largely the same language and, you know, you're operating under the same economic system and currency and largely taxation system as well. And, yeah, that is part of the beauty of of that system. However, I think the one one thing that's alarming for the longevity of the importance of American culture and how we've seen uh, Asia in particular rise is the fact that the quality of American cultural exports has declined markedly in the last couple decades. You know what what are we ex and I I I base this you know I, not off any data or statistics, but based on conversations that I have with people in other countries or people that are recent immigrants to this country, um, because they will often share with me what the most harmful elements of American culture that have permeated their culture. Like um, I was talking to somebody from the Dominican um, a few months back, and she was sharing with me all of the issues with gang violence that began after rap as a genre had begun to get more popular in their country. And um, you know, she attributes it to to rap culture. I, I, you know, I don't know the accuracy of that, but that's her perspective, having grown up there. And that is, and obviously, a cultural export from America. When you are talking about a culture that already, you know, suffers from a lot of economic strain and a lot of economic issues, doesn't have the same issues as the United States per se, like segregation and like all these other things we're talking about. But um, it's 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 kind of a recipe for not good things. And then you, you can look at what were American and European cultural exports of the past. They were the finest of arts of architecture. Well, so I I would agree and disagree. And so largely speaking, I would agree with you. However, I don't agree that it's declined. So I think it's more as time has gone on, like the cultural exports that used to happen and I'll used to being like pre 1900, even though that's a bit too recent, I would say like cultural exports were the very best that you had. And they were restricted to very specific things that you could export. Well, I'm talking about really the last century. Well, so, you know, moving up into this last century, essentially it hasn't like the quality hasn't gone down so much as everything's just going out now. There's no, uh, there's no real like filtering process. Not that there ever was, but like, you know, when Van Gogh was doing his paintings, like those guys were world renowned. You know what I mean? At, like shortly after their lives, cause yeah. word of mouth took, took longer to travel. But now we're at this stage of, you know, viral stuff on the internet. Whereas even back in the 1900s, TV was sending out so much more media than was ever out there before. And so I think like the cultural exports that we're seeing are like more along the lines of side effects and, you know, things just being put out there that weren't really, you know, refined to the level that things had to be in the past in order to get that level of success. I, I hear you and I do agree with that point that the sheer amount of content that's being put out is astronomically higher volume. And it's, we're also just talking about t- smaller time frames here. Mm-hmm. There, all of the stuff that, like we say, you know, reached global permeation in terms of recognition um, from centuries past was able to stand the test of time. And um, it was able to stand the test of time and because of that only the best was what was ultimately you know considered a cultural export of any sort and now we are we are in a situation where yes a lot of stuff does uh, just a lot more stuff is getting put out but the issue that i see is also and you know maybe this is just maybe we are just not part of the new generation and out of touch in this regard but i mean look at like top 40 music for example i I have my preferences, obviously, a lot of it is stuff that I grew up with, but I have an appreciation for the music from the generations that came before me as well. I cannot say the same about what is being put out right now. I mean... And what is popular, I should say. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely a split between what's popular and what's being put out that is actually, you know, not only to our individual preferences, but like good and quality overall. It's really difficult to decide and evaluate that, evaluate that as as it's happening. Um, there are definitely a number of artists from what I would argue is like the younger generations genres of music these days. And I'm definitely not as in touch with them as I should be. But like I hear new songs by young artists all the time that I'm like, wow, that was crazy good. Like, you know, and I just throw it on a playlist to check them out later. And it's just I find that there's not as much consistency. Well, did you find that it was good that. in terms of like just the production value and like the fact that it is catchy and enjoyable to listen to? Or did you find that the message all, like I, I'm also talking about the values that are being imparted by. Yeah. So music. usually for me, it's the what I would say are the values and the technical components. So, you know, the range of their voice. Mm-hmm. You know, they're breathing while they're singing. You know, if you hear a lot of crazy breaths into the microphone, <laughs> that's not a great song. I don't care how you define it, <laughs> like, unless it's supposed to be like a sex song in a movie or something, a sex scene. Like That's got to be like a stylistic choice at this point, because everyone can uh, filter. Right. Like out. everybody has yeah. some production capability, yeah. even just on a laptop. Mm-hmm. But so it's a lot of, you know, you were aware of the technical components and you had something to say. And like, that's way more important to me than whether it's catchy or not. I mean, that being said, it's music. I still like to listen to what I like to listen to. So, you know, I do lean heavier into, for example, like uh, bass guitars and more like rock kinds of sounds just because it's typically has that lower bass line and is a lot faster and more energetic. Mm-hmm. I like all kinds of music. I like a lot of classical music, too. Yeah. But it just depends. Hmm. Well, before we wrap this up, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, I want to ask you about is what is your perspective on what do you think the next sort of aesthetic movement is going to be? Because we've seen, you know, this recent trend towards a, a trend that really began in the 80s, but just this dystopian kind of dark, grungy. We're seeing a resurgence of the 90s in fashion, um, you know, this sort of heroin chic. Uh, look being favored by um, celebrities again, like, you know, skinny dudes in tight black clothes, stuff like that is uh, coming it's, back again. But well, yeah, it's where, really, where do you think we're going next. It's really interesting because <laughs> essentially where we're going next is to some variation of futuristic. That's and what I, I, that's what I was thinking too. I yeah. don't particularly mean like futuristic as in like, I don't know, like modern aesthetics. Mm -hmm. What I'm getting at is more like the space age, you know, everything looks like the inside of a spaceship and clothes start to more resemble like uniformed space suits. And like, sure, we'll have designs and all sorts of graphics and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But particularly over my lifespan, it's just interesting to see all the generations that came before us repeatedly saying like you guys dress like we used to you know 30 years ago it seems like we are recycling a lot of like prior trends but we do seem to cycle through them a lot faster and so the only thing that that really tells me is that we're changing fast but i still don't know where it's going that would be my guess if i had to no i i'm in complete agreement with you i'm glad you said that because uh I, yeah, I think wearable tech, uh, just kind of these uh, high performance fabrics. I mean, we've already seen kind of this transition from uh, into more comfort and athletic wear. Uh, the pandemic kind of accelerated that where people working, a lot of people working from home and just saying like, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to put in all this effort and dress up. I'm going to wear like nice technical fabrics that are comfortable and breathe well or, or, you know, ward off uh, the elements well, whatever. And, uh, and you have also seen a resurgence of people, you know, favoring, uh, spending time outdoors just to kind of balance the amount of time that we spend in front of computer screens and, uh, urbanites, I should say in particular have kind of like, you, you see, uh, hiking being a extremely common, uh, hobby among, uh, urbanites now and, uh, just 
chasing uh, the adventure that was more common and pretty much you know enjoyed by everybody in times past. But I, I yeah, I very much think that futurism and um, I, I think wearable tech is going to grow immensely uh, as the cost comes down. And I think uh, American domestic manufacturing, as, as we see manufacturing chains change over the next decade, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of this stuff be able to be produced uh, in in the United States. I mean, the innovation that happens at the top level of fashion, for example, like uh, crazy stuff in terms of material science, what they've been doing for uh, years and years now. And uh, I think the whole cyberpunk uh, dystopian aesthetic is starting to get a little bit tired. Maybe it's just me. I, I think uh, people are starting to get worn down by it and uh, looking to go in a, in a slightly direction. Of course, there's always going to be, you know, sub aesthetic movements, you know, going on within pocket communities uh, elsewhere. But I just think like, uh, broadly speaking, futurism is uh, the direction that we're uh, trending into. But yeah, that's, uh, we just want to keep it short today. Uh, just wanted to, kind of have a more casual conversation than we usually do. And uh, I'm really glad we got to talk about some of these subjects because this is kind of the stuff that you and I talk about a lot, uh, just not on the show, but it's uh, I, I, I hope you guys all enjoy this kind of content as well. Yeah. Let us know if uh, you liked this content a little bit more, or if you were, you know, more appreciative of our financial analysis from prior episodes. Um please like share and subscribe and show this to anyone else you think might be interested. Yeah. As always, we're on YouTube, Apple and Google podcasts, Spotify, um, catch us. Um, you'll see the links down below for all of those. And yes, like Glenn said, uh, a number quite a number of you that actually watch the show are not subscribed. I can see that in the analytics. So, uh, please, uh, take the effort to do that. It helps us out a lot. And, um, yeah, have a good one.